we are one week from Christmas, and I don't know, I don't know how your family works, but in our family, my wife and I, we split the Christmas shopping. We split it really evenly. And, and by split, what I mean is Sam shops for all of our kids. Uh, she shops for her parents. She shops for any of my siblings I give a gift to. She shops for any of the friends that we give gifts to. And I shop for her. That's about as split as can be, right? Right? My excuse is Christmas becomes, has always been a busy time for me at work. I always have things going on. And, and so I'm really thankful that Sam steps up. She does really good at, at this season. Uh, you know, for her, though, it's funny. She's done shopping. She's been done for a while. And I started this week. So I want to take a minute. I want to talk to you men here for a moment, okay? Listen, game, recognize game, okay? Men, some of you haven't started yet. Some of you just started. So I have some tips for you this morning, and you can pay me for these later. But here are some tips of things not to buy your wife for Christmas. And women, you can thank me as well later, all right? Men, first thing not to buy your wife for Christmas, do not buy her an appliance, okay? Hey, she may say she wants it, but that's not for her. That's for the house, right? You are welcome to try it, but I'm warning you, it may not go well for you. Men, number two, don't buy her clothing that involves any sort of sizing. Because here's, here's the deal. There's a one in a million chance you get the size right, but guess what? Those other 999,999 times, you're going to be in the doghouse. You're going to get it wrong. So just do yourself a favor. Don't buy anything that involves sizing. Three, men, do not buy your wife a self-help book or any exercise equipment. She may want it. She may say, I want this. But your gift is supposed to say, I love you. And when you buy her a self-help book, there's a chance she gets the wrong message, if you know what I mean here. Fourth thing, gentlemen, don't buy your wife jewelry. I know you're saying, well, why not? Here's why. Because the jewelry she wants is probably jewelry that you can't afford. And the jewelry you can't afford is probably not the jewelry she wants, all right? Can I just say that for most of us here? I'm just giving you... This is truth here. Number four, number five, I don't know, the next one. Listen, even if she says it, do not get her nothing. Even if she says, I don't want anything for Christmas, don't listen to her. Like, maybe you want to do that. You're a bolder man than I am, okay? I'm just, I'm going to throw that out there. And lastly, men, do not give her the gift that you want, right? Like you could buy a new 75-inch TV or a new grill or some lingerie and say, look, I brought this gift for you, when really it's the gift you want for yourself. She will read through that and see through you so fast. There you go, gentlemen. That is free for you. Take that away. Run with that this week as you go shopping. You know, gifts are funny because gifts are my love language. I love gifts. And I've, I've kind of, as I was younger, I've had to learn about gifts because I always had this idea that bigger is better, right? I should have been from Texas, but I always had bigger is better, more expensive. The, oh man, I always about that. And that has shifted how I viewed gift giving because while I love to give, give I love to receive gifts, I, 
I've tried to be good at giving gifts. And so my wife and I, we've kind of been through some stuff where I've learned that bigger isn't always better and more expensive isn't always better. So I got lots of other examples. One example was uh, Sam and I were dating many, many, many moons ago. And my sister, my sister, she's older than me and wiser than me. She's like, hey, you should buy Sam a ring. You should buy a ring just to let her know you love her. And I'm like, what a great idea. And I'm like, sister, would you come to, to the mall with me? And she's like, I can't. I can't go till later, but I didn't want to wait. So what does any uh, 18, 19-year-old boy do? He calls his buddy. Uh, and mind you, this buddy has never talked to a girl, let alone dated a girl. And I'm like, hey, come down with, to the mall with me. We go to K Jewelers, and I apply for a K Jewelers credit card on the spot because that's what 18 and 19-year-old kids do, right? And I got a $300 credit card. And my buddy says, here's what you need to do. You need to get the biggest ring that you can afford. And I'm like, you mean the, like, like no, I need to get something cute. And he's like, no, get, get the biggest one that has the most on it. So I said, K Jewelers, what's the biggest ring I can get for $300? And I don't even remember what was on that thing. But I remember I brought that ring home to show my sister. And she was like, what the heck did you do? Did you get that from a Cracker Jack box? Like, where did this come from? What did you do? It wasn't the best gift that year. I think Sam still loved it because she loves me, but uh, that was a, a learning experiment. There was another year, another year, uh, probably a year or two later, it was Black Friday, and I got up at 4 a.m. Now, I know, I know some of you, some of you, you, you know, you're, you're, you're higher class than me, and so you go shopping at places like, like TJ Maxx, and, and Costco, maybe the mall, maybe Target. But see, when I was growing up, I was, uh, uh, how do you say, uh, financially challenged. And so, in fact, I remember this very clearly. Like, the, the nicest restaurant that we ever went to growing up was Sea Galley. You know, we've got crab legs, that guy, we've got crab legs. That was the fanciest restaurant. And so, as I'm getting ready to go shopping, I'm like, well, where's a nice place I can shop for Sam at? And I'm like, well, there is that store next to Sea Galley, and if Sea Galley's fancy, then Shopco must be just as fancy, right? So I show up at Shopco, and I'm walking around. It's 4 a.m., and I'm like, man, I don't know what to get her. And I look, and there's this rack. There's this rack of coats, all right? And I look at this coat, and, it, and it's $150 on sale for $29.99. I'm like, genius! Husband of the year. Like, I don't even know if she needed a coat. I don't, I don't even know her size. I don't know her style, but I'm like, genius, this is a $150 coat for 30 bucks. I'm going to be the best husband ever. I think somebody intervened before I actually gave it to her and got me to give her something different. I, I'm pr I think that's how that worked out. I don't remember. Uh, but I remember very clearly that coat. I was like, man, this is such a good idea. You know, it's funny, though. How with gifts, sometimes we do think bigger is better. We think more expensive is more meaningful. And I'll say this. I've had to learn in being a gift giver. My wife, she's great. She is such a good gift giver. And, you know, as I think back over our 23 years together, uh, the most meaningful gifts that she's given me are not the ones that are the biggest and the most I love those. I do. I like the bigger and more expensive ones. But the most meaningful gifts that she's given me are things that really maybe show more of her heart. So, for example, I have on my desk, still to this day, she made this little book, this little three-by-five book, a three-by-three book, something like this. 
for my birthday in 2005. This thing is 17 years old, and it still sits on my desk. And there are some pictures of us, some things that she loves about me, some pictures of our kids. And, and, and this is one of those things that I cherish. It sits on my desk all these years later. My, my dad died when I was, was nine, and, and so I have, a, you know, just memories of my dad. And, and I remember a couple years ago, she gave me a framed photo of my dad. That is something I just, I just, I cherish. She never had the chance, she never got to meet my dad, but that was kind of this really cool connection for me of, uh, yeah, I didn't have a picture, and she gave me one. And, uh, and then uh, this couple birthday uh, uh, or two ago, she wrote me this letter that was just sweet. It just kind of summarized uh, our story, summarized her love. And I tell you what, like if our house was going to be destroyed, and I had like, like 30 seconds to grab like a few things, then those are the things I would grab. Now, I, I still like the bigger gifts. So if you like my wish list, I will give you my wish list, and you can look for some of those bigger and more expensive things. But I will say the gifts that if all was going to go down and I could only grab a couple things, those are the things that I would grab. Things that have meaning, things that show art. This Christmas, we have been in a series looking at the story of the little drummer boy. And I know you're saying, well, that's not a biblical story. I know it's not a biblical story, but it is ripe with, with connections to the real Christmas story and really some gospel lessons for us to learn as the church. In fact, we looked at, at two weeks ago, we looked at the humbleness of the little drummer boy. He didn't come from much. He's described as being poor and dirty and disheveled and really... There's a lot of connection to the little drummer boy and the main characters of the Christmas story. Mary, and Joseph, and the shepherds. They're not quite the people that we would expect to be in the Christmas story. And it's this idea, this lesson that God often works through the people that we would least expect. And isn't that true? And that's consistent in scripture. And typically that's true in our lives as well. Last week, we looked at the uh, little boy, how he was invited by the wise men. The wise men came to him and said, come. And the little boy showed that for us today. Come, they told me, pa-rum-pa-pum-pum, to meet the newborn king, pa-rum-pa-pum-pum. And we saw there was another invitation in the Christmas story where the angel said to the shepherds, hey, come with us. Come find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And both the little drummer boy and the shepherds, they go and they meet Jesus their lives are totally transformed. And we saw how in Scripture, in the New Testament, Jesus offers that same invitation to come, meet the newborn king, and your life will be transformed forever. But today, we get a look at the gifts. We're looking at the gifts that uh, the wise men and the drummer boy have to offer to Jesus. And it gives us a little bit of insight as to what is God looking for from us. So obviously, like I said, the, drummer, the little drummer boy, he's invited by the wise men to meet the, the, the king. And uh, they're, they're traveling together. They're playing their pum pum pums together. Uh, if you're the wise men, you may have regretted inviting the little boy. He just keeps beating on us. I don't know. That's just the way I picture the story being. Uh, but they, they come. They travel from the east. They travel for a period of time. And they get to finally meet the king. They get to Jesus. And the wise men, they have their gifts, right? That's the passage that Abby read for us this morning. Here's what Matthew chapter 2, verse 11 says. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and they worshiped him. And opening their gifts, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
Now, here's a little bit, of, a, little, a little tidbit for you. How, did you know that the wise men were single? Did you know they were all single guys? Because if they were married, if they had wives, they probably would have made it on time. They would have stopped and asked for directions. They would have made it to, the, they would have delivered the baby on time. They would have been there at the birth and they probably would have bought, brought better gifts. They probably would have brought like a casserole and some diapers and some wipes. Uh, but you can tell they're single because they show up two years late and they bring gifts that no baby has anything to do with, right? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Like what are they going to do with that, right? Actually, these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, there's actually a lot of meaning behind them. And beyond that, these gifts have a tremendous amount of value. In fact, there are some smart people that look and say, these gifts, if you were to look at them culturally today, would have been a value of somewhere between $250,000, upwards of $4 million. So this gold, frankincense, and myrrh that they're offering Jesus, man, they have so much value invested in these gifts to Jesus. Well, the drummer boy, we know that the story, the song goes, our finest gifts we bring, that's the wise men, they bring these expensive gifts. And the little drummer boy says, well, I don't have a gift that's fit for a king, but I do have my drum. <laughs> now, again, I always like to kind of speculate to how the story goes. And like, like, how did the little boy get a drum, right? Now, I don't know if you've got like uh, nieces and nephews, but I always think it's really funny to give your nieces and nephew gifts that will annoy the parents, right? So maybe, maybe it was their uncle who's like, here, little boy, have a drum so you can drive mom and dad crazy by banging on that drum all day long. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the little drummer boy, maybe he was at church and he saw Alec playing guitar. And he's like, man, I want to be like Alec and, and play in a band like Nickelback. And so, you know, he just got a drum because he wanted to be in the band. Maybe mom and dad were like, hey, we're going to raise a prodigy. He's going to be the next, you know, drumming sensation. Like, I don't know how the little boy got a drum. But he's got a drum, and he comes, and he says, Mary, shall I play for him? Pum. Mary nods. He plays his best for him. Pum. And then he smiles at him. I just got to stop saying the pums. It's just fun to say. Pum. Now, here's what I want to do, though. Let's step back a second. Like, here's, here's the wise man. Here's, here's the drummer boy. Let's... Step back from them. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about us. What does God expect from us? I mean, this is what they brought God. This is what they brought Jesus. What does God expect from us? What kind of gifts are we supposed to bring to him? And let me, let me, let me maybe ask it this way. What is the gifts that we bring that please him? What are things that we can give to him that will please him, that he'll be pleased with us. In fact, that's what I want to wrestle with today. What do we give to him that he would be pleased with us? You know, there are some, sometimes we think, well, uh, God wants my perfect obedience. If I can just follow all the religious rules and be a very good person, man, then God will be pleased with me, right? Sometimes that becomes part of our, our, our thinking. In fact, this is what happened in the Old, this is what happened in the Old Testament. This, the religious rulers of Jesus' day, Right? They thought, you know, if we could just keep all the religious rules, all the commandments. In fact, it wasn't just keeping the religious rules and the commandments. It was going above and beyond them. And so it wasn't just honoring the Sabbath day. You can't, it wasn't just about that. They added to it and said, well, you know, if I'm going to honor the Sabbath day, 
then I can only take a certain amount of steps in a day. And I can't take more steps than that. I can't light a candle because if I lit a candle, that might be considered work. So they would take the rules and the commandments and go even further than that. For example, in Matthew 23, I think Matthew 23, it says that these religious rulers, they even tithed on their spices. Okay? So imagine you're getting ready this week. You're going to make a brisket. You're going to make something for dinner, prime rib, whatever you do, turkey, ham, I don't know, whatever you like. And you pull out the Montreal steak seasoning, right? These guys would have put the Montreal steak seasoning and they're counting it out. Okay, nine for me, one for God. Nine for me, one for God. Like that's a little bit ridiculous. But that's what these guys thought, man. If we could just keep all the religious rules, then that's what we can give to him and he'll be pleased with us. How many of us have been there? We think God wants our perfect obedience. Maybe, maybe we think God would be pleased with us if we were like his slaves, right? And we have this idea that, that you know, if, if, if I'm going to serve God, then I just have to suffer for him. And I just, I can't enjoy life. I just suffer to be obedient to him. And as long as I can do that, then he'll be pleased with me. Some of us have been through some of that, where we feel like I can't enjoy life. I just have to sacrifice continually to suffer for Jesus, and then he'll be pleased. When I became a Christian, in fact, the church that I attended they put a, a heavy emphasis on, on people going into full-time ministry. They put a heavy emphasis on people becoming pastors and missionaries, which is not a bad thing. But for them, it was kind of like this hierarchy in Christian circles, where it was, it was kind of this idea that God would be more pleased with you if you were a pastor or a missionary than if you were an engineer or, or a teacher or a plumber or anything else. And so in this church, you have all these teenagers and teenagers is a hard time of life, and they felt this, pre- their teenagers trying to figure out life for themselves, and they're feeling this pressure. Man, if I'm going to please God, I have to go be a pastor, and I can't be anything else. Maybe that's where you're at. Man, if I'm going to please God, I have to be something completely different than what I am now. What does God want from us? What is a gift that God wants from us that would please him? You see, there's a, a passage in Mark, Mark chapter 12 that I think gives us insight to answer that question. What does God want from us? What gift can we bring to him that he'd be pleased with us? In Mark 12, Jesus is at the temple. He's in the foyer, uh, sitting near the offering boxes. And he, he, he's, he's in the foyer. He's hanging out. He's talking to people. I don't know what he's doing. He's listening to the music, doing something. And he's watching as these rich people come and put their large gifts there's large donations into the offering box. And then he sees a poor widow. And she comes and she drops two small copper coins worth nothing more than a few cents. And Jesus watches this going on. And it says in verse 43 that Jesus called his disciples together and said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who have contributed. And I'm like, wait a second, what? What did he just say? Like you've got rich people come and putting these large donations in, yet this poor widow comes and drops just two little coins. Like I've been in the nonprofit world for almost 20 years now. Like I know the difference between a large donation and two coins, right? It's pretty clear which one is bigger. In fact, when it says this lady dropped two coins in, again, if we were to look at the value of that, uh, uh, the smart people, they, they, they differ. It could have been anywhere as much as one-eighth of a cent to uh, maybe one-sixty-fourth of a day's wage. 
So we're talking about those coins representing a penny, maybe up to $1.50. And Jesus just said that she put in more than all those other guys. And here's why. Because Jesus is not concerned about the figures. He's not concerned about the amount. He's concerned about the heart. Because look what he says in verse 44. Speaking about the rich people who made the large donations, he said they contributed out of their abundance. But she contributed out of her poverty. And she put in everything she had and all that she had to live on. Those wealthy people, and their donations were large. But they weren't a sacrifice. Yes, they were large, but they were out of their abundance. It didn't affect their bottom line. It was just something, hey, we're able to do this because we're wealthy, we're able to do this, and it doesn't hurt us. We can still go and do everything the way that we want to do and live our life the way that we want to live. I mean, imagine this widow. If she were to make enough money to, to match the donation of the rich people, it would take her entire life for her to, to donate that large of an amount. Yeah, here's this widow with very little to her name. She comes and takes those two coins, all that she had, and she drops that in. Her generosity was a sacrifice. Her generosity would have been felt. It would have affected her bottom line. It would have affected how she lived that month. It would have had impact on her. Now hear me for a second. I know sometimes the church gets a bad rap. This is not about money. Can we just... This is not about money. God's top concern is not the amount of money that you give or the proportion to your income of money that you give. God's primary concern is, is whether your heart is fully dedicated to him or not. That is what God's primary concern is. And our heart and whether we are fully dedicated to him, it is often shown through how we interact with God, how we, how we live our life and the offerings that we give. And I'm not talking about financial. I'm talking about our time offerings. I'm talking about our obedience. Our dedication is often shown on how we live for him and what we're willing to give to him and what we're not willing to give to him. Our heart for God is shown as to whether we're giving to God out of convenience, out of what's easy, what's comfortable, or whether our giving to God is out of gratitude and out of sacrifice. And again, when I'm talking about giving, I'm not talking about financial. I'm talking about time and love and devotion and compassion and all those things that fit into being a Christian. Because I'll just say this. I think there are some of us that we have a, a pretty casual relationship with God. Oh, we, we, we love God. We, we, we love God as long as it's not inconvenient for us. We love God as long as he doesn't try and change us, right? We'll, we'll think about God, and we'll want God in our life as long as we have time or as long as we need something from him. God, I screwed up. I need you to come and fix this for me. That's when we need God, right? We, we, we have this attitude, well, we'll be at church when there's something else going on. You know, we'll be at church when, you know, when we're not tired or when there's not football on, or when there's not this or that happening. Oh, we'll, we'll, go to, we'll go to Safeway, and we'll drop $20 in the bell ringer for Salvation Army 
because that doesn't have a big inconvenience on me. That's not going to hurt my bottom line. I've got a spare 20. Sure, that makes me feel good, but it's not like I have to actually feel that and, and feel the weight of that. We give our time, we give our energy to God often out of abundance, not out of sacrifice, not out of gratitude. I think some of us have had a casual relationship with God and this is where I have to ask, like, do you understand who God is? Do you understand what God has done for you? Because if we know who God is, if we truly know who he is, that casual relationship just doesn't feel very sufficient. When we understand all that he's done for us, that casual giving to God out of abundance, it just doesn't feel like it's enough because of who he is. And this is where I love the picture of this widow. I think this, I think this widow, I think she recognizes who God is. I think she, she understands, man, this is the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is the, the creator of all things. I think she understands God is the one who loves her unconditionally, who sees her in her poverty, who sees her in her affliction. She know, he knows her. I think she knows this. I think she knows, man, God's the one who will fix the wrongs in my life, who will make things right. He's the one who heals the broken parts. I think she understands he's the one who gives meaning to my life, who offers us peace and rest and joy. She understands God's the one who sent his son Jesus to the earth to die for her so that she could be redeemed and have a restored relationship with God. She understands who God is. And in response to that, it's not let me give out of my abundance. It's God, I can't help but give all that I have. And I love this because here she is. She's recognizing, listen, God's not looking for my perfect obedience. He's not demanding us to be perfect people. Praise God for that. God's not expecting us all to go and be full-time pastors and, and missionaries. He's not expecting us to be slaves and serve him and not enjoy life. No, what he wants is our hearts to be dedicated to him fully. Not that we're walking in this, in this life where we live half ourselves and every once in a while we'll give something to God. No, he wants us fully dedicated to him. Not just our leftovers. Not just out of abundance. He wants our hearts fully dedicated to him. In fact, I think this is the, the, the summary for this message. I think this is what it's about. That is what and how you give to God that shows whether your heart is fully dedicated to him. And again, when I talk about giving, hear me, I'm not talking about financially. I'm talking about our life. What and how we give to him, our time, our money, our treasure, our, our heart, our obedience, that shows whether we are fully dedicated to him or not. In fact, this is the reason why we can celebrate the, poor, the, the gift from the poor widow because it showed that her heart was dedicated fully to God. This is why we can celebrate the gift of the little drummer boy. This is why Jesus can smile when he played his drum because that, that playing the drum was, was showing him, Jesus, my heart is fully dedicated to you. This is why the wise men, they're not remembered for the cost of their gifts. Remember for the heart behind them. Show them that they understood 
And they had gratitude that Jesus was the Savior who came to die to redeem us. What we give and how we live, it shows whether our hearts are truly dedicated to him. So I've got two points of application in response to that. Number one, do you truly know who God is? Do you truly have a relationship with him? See, we talked about this last week. God's primary concern for us is not that we become moral religious people. God, that's not God's primary concern. His primary concern, you look in Scripture again and again and again, you see, is he offers these invitations to come and to know him, to come and, and have a, of a relationship with him. Man, there's a lot of people that know a lot of things about God. Oh, I know about God. I read some things on the internet about God. I heard some things about God. And they have a lot of knowledge about him, but they don't actually know him personally. This, where, this, this, this poor widow, listen, she doesn't, she doesn't sacrifice all that she has. She doesn't have to put her faith and trust that God will provide for her if she doesn't actually truly know him and have a relationship with him. Do you understand that? Now, we can, we can know some things about God, and we can spout off some facts, but if you don't actually know him and have a personal relationship with him, those things are completely different. And that's what I want to invite you to do, not just to know some information about God, but actually to have a relationship with him. I want you to know him the way that Isaiah 9 describes him. Isaiah 9 is one of those famous Christmas passages, one of those Christmas scriptures. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Listen, do you know Jesus as the Wonderful Counselor? You see, when you have a relationship with him, Jesus is not just a friend who listens to you complain about your problems. But do you actually know him as the wonderful counselor, the one who advises and instructs and guides you? And he doesn't just sit there as a friend. He actually guides you from a position of power and authority. So as you go and you, you pour out your problems to him, he, he's there to listen. He, he's there to, to, to be compassionate. And then he actually has the power to go and help you fix what's gone wrong. Do you know him as a wonderful counselor? Do you know him as the mighty God? I love this idea of this picture of a, of a mighty God. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is always present. And if he is that mighty God, there's nothing that he cannot do. Do you know how much hope that brings if you know him as being the mighty God? That no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, listen, there's nothing that God can't do. You might find yourself up to your head in trouble and trials and difficulty, but if you know him as a mighty God, he's the one who can deliver you, can bring you freedom, can heal what's gone wrong. Do you know him like that? Do you know him as the everlasting father? When I think about how many of us struggle with parent wounds, struggle with, with dad wounds, the scripture says he is our everlasting father. That means, that means listen, you need to hear this. He's your ever, you will never be a bother to him. You will never be a bother to him. He is crazy passionate about you. That means, as the everlasting father, listen, he's not looking to crush you. 
He's not looking to belittle you and tell you how wrong you are. He's looking to say, I love you. He's looking to be compassionate to you, to be with you. And you know the best part about this? As the everlasting father, he will never, ever leave you. That's the promise from scripture. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you know him as the everlasting father? See, there's a difference between just knowing about him and actually knowing him as the everlasting father. Do you know him as the prince of peace? Again, every time I see this word peace, I think of Dan Brown, who could probably stand up here for, give us a four-hour lecture about this idea of shalom, of peace. It means wholeness, completeness, settledness. Let's just be honest, how many of us spend our life searching for peace? We're searching for peace in our money, in our relationships, in, in our, in our, in our uh, accomplishments. Man, if I could just get here, then I'd be at peace. Listen, here's what God is saying. Jesus is the prince of peace. You want peace? It's not found in all those stuff. It's found in him. The more you can just be at peace and at calm and satisfied. It's not found in accomplishing. It's found in having a relationship with him. That's why I got to say, listen, we need to be like this widow. We need to not just know about him. We need to know him and have the invitation to come and know him, that he is all those things. The everlasting father, the prince of peace, the mighty God. Do you know this, Jesus? Have you experienced his love and his grace and his peace and his purpose? So I want to be clear, like you come to church today. Man, God's not looking for you to do a bunch of stuff for him. No, the invitation for you is to know him, to have a, a relationship with him. Because there's a huge difference between knowing about him and truly knowing him. Second application question for you this morning. Is your heart dedicated to him? Again, remember the contrast of the story. You've got those rich guys. They're dropping large sums of money into the offering. It's convenient. It's easy. It's comfortable. They've got the margin. They've got excess. It's not going to require much of them. Yeah, here's this poor widow. And she's a person who God is pleased with. And it's not about how much she gave. It's about the posture of her heart. That her heart was fully dedicated to him. So let me ask you this. What gift do you need to offer to God to show that your heart is truly dedicated to him? Now, I can't answer this for you. My encouragement to you is to look into your life. Look into your heart. Take a serious moment, an honest look. And consider your, your time your treasure, your, your life, your attitude? Are you fully dedicated to him? Is your relationship with God, is your giving to God out of convenience? Is it easy? Are you holding on to the majority of your life to live for yourself and, oh, I'll, I'll just go every once in a while, I'll just give a little offering to him and just do a little something for him just to appease him? Or are you truly dedicated to him let me put it this way. Another way to know whether we are fully dedicated to God 
is not maybe by what we give to God, but maybe it's what we won't give to God. What is it that you won't give to him? What is hard for you to give to God? Is it your money? Is it control over your life? Control over your family? What is it you will not give to God? Is it your addiction? Is it your time? Is it your, your commitment to God's people, to his bride? What is it that you are unwilling to give to him? And let me just say this, and here's the thing about church. So often we come into church and we act like we all have it together. We come into church and we're like, hey, we put on our Sunday best and we're like, man, God is so good. Man, I'm just on fire for him. And I tell you what, most of us are lying through our teeth. Can I say that? Is it okay for me to say that? See, church is not just a bunch of place. Church is not a place where there's a bunch of goody two-shoes acting like we all have it figured out. We don't. Most of us in this room, we've got a struggle. We've got a burden. We've got an area that is difficult for us to surrender. It's not wrong for us to have that. I think Scripture says that each of us, there's a sin that easily besets us. I think that's in Hebrews. What is the area that's difficult for you to surrender to God? Because I'll tell you what, you're not the only one struggling with it. We all have these areas that we struggle to surrender. What is it for you? Are you willing to be honest between you and God? Say, God, hey, I get it. I get who you are. I get what you've done for me. But man, I struggle in giving this area to you, surrendering this area to you. I'll tell you the first step, and this is so significant, the first step to, to growth, the first step to overcoming is this willingness to to acknowledge where we are. This willingness to confess, God, I struggle giving this to you. And there's such a power in us making that first step. You know, we came in today and we're talking about gifts. And we're in this Christmas season where we are giving gifts to one another. We're giving gifts to our family. I love to receive gifts. That's my, my love language. It's just as important that we give gifts as well. You know, the little drummer boy and the wise men, they came and they brought their gifts to Jesus. Here's our gold, here's our frankincense, here's our myrrh, here's my drum, pa pum pum Listen, what are you going to give to God this year? You were given a card when you came in today. I hope you still have it. If you don't, there's some cards up here. What I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to say... Would you consider giving God a gift for Christmas? What is the Lord laying on your heart? What is something that you need to, to give to God? Something that he spoke, about, spoke to you about today. An area that's a struggle. God, I struggle giving my time to you. I struggle giving up control over my future. I struggle being committed to the people of God. What is that thing that's for you? We've got these boxes up here. And I'm going to invite you to write on your card what it is you're going to give to him. And, and I don't know if this is a Christmas gift or a birthday gift or both of those for Jesus. I don't know which one it is. It's both of them. Uh, you can tell Jesus this is for both your birthday and Christmas. If you don't get two, you get one. But I'm going to invite you to, to write on that card. Say, God, here's what I need to give to you. 
Here's what's going to show me that I'm fully surrendered to you. Here's the air that's a struggle. And I tell you what, I think there's this powerful picture of us saying, Christmas is all about the gift, right? Not the gift that we're going to open on, on Christmas morning, but it's the gift that God gave of Jesus, who came so we can know him, who came to redeem us, to fix what's gone wrong, to restore us into a relationship with him. Listen, if you know him, if you know him like that, man, I think we have to be people who are willing to give all we have to him. So today, we're going to sing a song of response, a song called Gratitude. Out of our gratitude, I'm going to ask you to write down a gift, something that you can give to him. And let that be your prayer this next year. God, this is an area that I'm struggling. This is an area I know I need to surrender. This is an area I need to continue to give to you. And come and drop that in these boxes and let that be your gift to you. Let that be symbolic. God, this is my gift to you. And I think there's going to be something that God's going to do that's beautiful in your life as we are willing to give these gifts and surrender to you.